This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the newest edition in the Compliance Podcast Network, my latest podcast, Compliance and Coronavirus. As the voice of compliance, I wanted to start a podcast which will help bring both clarity and sanity to the field of compliance, the compliance practitioner, and indeed the compliance profession during this worldwide health and healthcare crisis. Taking up a variety of topics as diverse as working from home to sporting events, to the role of the board of directors, to crisis management, to the role of supply chains. We will look at all of these in this podcast. If you have a topic you'd like covered on compliance and coronavirus, please let me know. I'd be happy to do a podcast on it. In this episode, I'm joined by Sapita Rowland. She is a vice president at K2 Intelligence Finn and head of managed services. She has over 20 years of regulatory compliance experience, including leadership positions at money services businesses, large financial institutions, and banks. We took a look at compliance challenges during COVID-19 and PPP lending. It's an incredibly interesting and important episode. I know you'll enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Sapita Rowland. Sapita is a vice president at K2 Intelligence Finn and head of managed services. And we are going to visit today about some of the issues uh, coming out of uh, the coronavirus health crisis and the economic dislocation around reopening and uh, congressional and administration efforts to jumpstart the economy and how that might impact financial crime. So, uh, Sapita, first of all, thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Good morning, Tom. It's a pleasure to join you on the podcast. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about your role at uh, K2FIN? Sure, of course. So as head of managed services, my role is to support the efforts of our clients on an ongoing basis to ensure the sustainability and success of their financial crimes compliance program, particularly focused on program governance, model governance and validation, investigations and adjudication support, know your customer investigations, and of course, audit and remediation support. So, Sapita, I think uh, when we started the sort of COVID health crisis early to mid-March, and as we moved through it, financial crimes was perhaps not on the front of people's minds. But now, as we've had literally trillions of dollars pumped into the economy uh, because of the economic dislocation and monies related directly to COVID-19, uh, we are literally in, in the United States and maybe even worldwide awash in uh, new cash. And I think now people are beginning to think about what are the implications of this. So I wanted to start with uh, the question of what does the payroll protection program or how does it impact a bank's financial crime compliance program when literally trillions of dollars is being uh, pushed out by the federal government uh, to businesses of, of multiple sizes here in the United States? Right. Great question to start with, Tom. As listeners may already know, the Payroll Protection Plan, or PPP as we now call it, was created under the CARES Act to provide small businesses with an incentive to keep their staff on payroll through the COVID-19 pandemic. These incentives are provided in the form of loans, which are originated by financial institutions. And to date, as you noted, there are over 4 million loans that have been processed. And a vast majority of these were through uh, participating lenders who had not previously actually provided small business administration loans as a part of their portfolio. 
So these banks are still obligated to satisfy the Bank Secrecy Act and associated anti-money laundering laws and regulations and adherence to their institution's policies and practices, including satisfying components of know your customer, such as customer identification program, customer due diligence, and beneficial ownership, in addition to then performing enhanced due diligence, customer risk rating, transaction monitoring, and sanctions screening. Banks should be aware that standards for capturing beneficial ownership information also differ between the customer due diligence or CDD rule obligations for beneficial ownership and the SBA standards established under the PPP. So under the PPP, the new customers, uh, for new customers, banks must collect information for beneficial owners holding 20% or more interest rather than the 25% threshold under the CDD rule. So slight modification, but very meaningful to a bank's internal process. This means that there will be up to five beneficial owners identified per legal entity as opposed to the maximum four under the CDD rule for beneficial ownership, um, which then also has the prong for controlling individual. Additionally, the amount of information collected uh, from at the on- onset differs. So adding on an individual's title and percentage of ownership as mandatory information is different than the obligations under the CDD rule. It's important to keep in mind that banks should review their internal policies and procedures to ensure that uh, that they had incorporated this as a new product offering within their compliance program, particularly, as I mentioned earlier, for those institutions that had not previously been an SBA lending participant um, and didn't have this as a product in their portfolio. They need to properly assess the product risk, as well as then make sure that their documented internal controls align with those risks and with their internal procedures that they had established. And of course, as with any product or service offered by a bank, there is an expectation that these PPP loans will become a part of the normal course of independent audit and regulatory exam. So again, I'm going to reiterate, ensuring that appropriate documentation is in place is absolutely critical. Um, You want to make sure that a year from now or at some point in the future when examiners and auditors come in, that there is complete documentation as to how your policies, procedures changed to address this product and its risk and what your internal procedures were. Speedo, that's a, 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 a fabulous point that you just ended with, which is the documentation part. And I often tell people that in the anti-corruption compliance world, the three most important things in any compliance program are document, document, document. But not only is the document, document, document part so important, but the other point you raised, which is a year from now, three years from now, five years from now, when the people involved in the actual loan or transaction may be long gone, there's going to be no way for a bank, financial institution, or other company to demonstrate they complied with their own internal policies unless that documentation is in place. Is that a message that you find is resonating with your client base now? It absolutely is. And I think the key here is take the opportunity now. If you didn't get the onset of establishing the program, take the opportunity now to go back and, you know, ensure, review and ensure that your documentation is sufficient and adequate and um, making sure that, you know, if your transaction monitoring program, if anything has changed 
um, more so on the back office, the operational side of things, that those are all documented as well. So the entire life cycle of that PPP loan from origination to monitoring, oversight, investigation, ultimately into any reporting that happens is well uh, substantiated and documented. And one of the reasons I particularly appreciate uh, visiting with someone like yourself who has a little more focus on financial crime compliance than perhaps anti-corruption compliance is what I see is more robustness around this documentation of know your customer, the transaction, the ultimate beneficial owner. And I was wondering if you could overlay that with the COVID-19 and PPP, how all of this impacts both money laundering and even more uh, importantly, fraud uh, risk analysis. Absolutely, Tom. And I think part of this goes to a safe and sound governance program that you have over these transaction monitoring systems that banks have implemented. So as a part of a bank's monitoring program, it's important to keep in mind that the institution should assess the effectiveness of the monitoring program on an ongoing basis against the products and services they offer. Hence, if a bank has taken on the initiative to participate in the PPP loans, similarly, their monitoring program needs to be enhanced to address the risks. Um, Keeping in mind that there's really three permissible uses for a PPP loan for commercial customers, first being uh, coverage for payroll costs, including benefits, health care, some of those ancillary costs associated to payroll. Uh, Second is funding for mortgage interest, for payment of, of the mortgage interest, the rent, utility payments. And then third is payment of interest associated with other types of debt obligations that the uh, commercial customer may have. So understanding the, we, we understand the, the source of the funds, right, being the, the government entities. And then uh, the use of funds is what's critical for banks to be able to to monitor and um, make sure that they have appropriate alerts built against. Knowing these uses of funds, banks should incorporate it into their transaction monitoring program, as I mentioned, um, to measure and and be able to uh, understand whether or not these commercial customers are using it for the intended purpose. So, for example, if you identify personal use of funds, let's say the purchase of a luxury item uh, that doesn't seem to align with the, the purpose of that business and it's not directly tied to payroll or other business activity, this is the type of red flag that uh, investigation teams, AML teams want to take on and take a look at to understand what gave rise to that use of the funds and whether or not it was appropriately allocated. Other examples that we've learned about through recent criminal charges, in fact, including included um, obtaining fraudulent loans to pay employees for businesses that weren't even operating during the start of this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, interestingly enough, there may be payments um, that are going to companies that don't even have salaried employees on their payroll, or they may be going to pay for employees that aren't even employed by that business. Um, so looking at some of those anomalies gives rise for some email investigations to take place. Additionally, um, as with any crisis event, I would be remiss to not mention that it gives rise to fraud activity. Uh, as it relates to COVID-19, 
there we have seen a rise in in fraud, particularly related to the sale of personal protection equipment or PPEs, as well as any other ancillary supplies. Um, in addition to the fraud of of PPEs, of the sale of PPEs, we've also seen an uptick in business email compromise, which was already a, a very targeted fraud area in the past. I think we've seen a higher uptick of that as well. Given that many businesses are, are either closed or employees are working remote, along with the closure of many bank branches, um, the use of cash has, of course, decreased, and then the use of electronic payment methods has increased. So it's in a very interesting uh, environment ecosystem in which we're operating in, in this uh, financial environment. Um, banks should remain vigilant of increased chargebacks that are taking place, increase in disputes related to unauthorized activity, uh, and changes in the customer's wire activity, for example, uh, which may be tied to that business email compromise I mentioned. All of these are indicative, maybe indicative, of illicit activity and are worthy of review and, and further investigation. Lastly, another reminder, and Tom, we can't say this enough, related to documentation of your program. If any of your alert review methodology, your transaction monitoring methodology changes during the course of this PPP lending uh, relationship that a financial institution has developed, you want to make sure your model governance documentation has changed, your model validation, uh, as well as then, again, your internal procedures um, and policy. Internal control documentation is really critical to, to keep pace with the changing um, with the changes that are being made to systems as well as to uh, your program overall. Speed on Monday of this week, the Department of Justice released an update to its 2019 evaluation of corporate compliance programs around anti-corruption compliance. And in this 2020 update, they talked about maintaining your staffing models and resources for anti-corruption compliance. How does that concept translate over into your world and financial crimes compliance? And what do you think regulators uh, are telling banks right now about their staffing models and resources? Absolutely, Tom. Staffing is imperative to a safe and sound uh, BSA and AML program, a financial crime program. Um, In response to the global pandemic, Many organizations have teams who are remote and not in the traditional work environment, which may have previously provided an opportunity for collaboration and communication. When it comes to managing risk associated with financial crime, it's imperative that open lines of communication be established so that the timely information is received amongst the investigative team, and they also have the technology resources they need to continue to perform their investigations uh, remotely. It's important to have also an established line of communication with your frontline staff. So we oftentimes forget that um, they still continue to have that face-to-face customer interaction at times. So they need to really understand what are the fraud typologies? What are some of the red flags that need to be, um, that they need to be on alert for? As well as then what controls are in place to avoid that fraudulent activity from taking place? So staying um, in touch with our customer-facing units, are very uh, it's very imperative in this remote work environment time. Um, for example, fraudsters may be using social engineering to call and pretend to be a client needing access to critical account information. 
So banks should ensure that they have appropriate controls, and it goes to the adage of trust but verify. Uh, what's more is fraudsters may be also looking at opportunities to exploit fragmented teams, aiming to access systems through nefarious tactics uh, and various other channels. Um, you may recall, Tom, that my colleague Joe Taylor out of our London office had also mentioned some of these key points when she spoke with you on a prior podcast episode. Additionally, some institutions reallocated staff internally to be able to participate in the PPP lending process and to facilitate the process of those applications. It's really important to keep in mind that assessing the sufficiency of the BSA AML staffing resources is a part of the examination process as well. And as it's articulated in the updated FFIEC's BSA AML examination manual, where it advises that examiners should confirm that BSA compliance officers have the appropriate authority, independence, and access to resource. So making sure that if team members were reallocated for any purpose, that there's still sufficient resources within the BSA team to address day-to-day activity that takes place. Further, banks, I would say, should really monitor their alert volumes, particularly if the algorithms have changed, as we talked about, to address some of the either fraud or money laundering risks associated with PPP lending. So ensuring that timely investigations are completed, that reporting, uh, whether it's SAR reporting, has to be done within a timely manner, making sure that there's no backlogs that are um, being created or delays that may be indicative of a lack of staffing. Um, And I would really use these words of caution that now is not a time to dial back compliance controls. Leaders must regularly communicate and demonstrate that processes and controls that guide compliance are still in effect, and PPP loans must still undergo the same level of scrutiny as any other product and service that is offered by that institution. And lastly, but very important, is providing timely training to analysts. I I had mentioned the frontline communication, but I think it's also critical and important to train our analysts and investigators to be sure that they understand not only what the PPP product offering is, but what are the red flags associated with that product and what information is available from the customer's application that can be used as a part of the investigation process? And what are some of the emerging typologies that we see coming out of some of these fraud scenarios and uh, criminal charges that are brought? Speed, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I was wondering if listeners wanted uh, any additional information, where could they go? Thank you, Tom. We regularly share thought leadership perspectives on this topic and, and more on our website at k2intelligence.com. And you can, of course, follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to receive our latest updates. Speed, um, I should have mentioned this uh, when we started, but we are tangentially related, and I will explain that to you by saying go green. Uh, I hope that as the reopening continues into Q3 and 4, that uh, perhaps I can call upon you again to see where financial crimes compliance may be in the fall uh, of 2020. So thanks very much. Of course, it would be my pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance and Coronavirus. This podcast posts three times a week at 10 a.m. on 
Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of each week. That's 10 a.m. Central Time. I hope you will check out our episodes as we post during this health crisis and economic dislocation. This month on The Compliance Life, I'm featuring Ryan Robillet, who talks about his journey to the CCO chair. I hope you'll join me for another episode of Compliance and Coronavirus, where I bring clarity and sanity to the business executive and compliance professional around these most serious issues. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.